Chapter 13 of Afloat on the Ohio, an historical pilgrimage of a thousand miles in a skiff, from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter 13 the Scioto and the Shawanese, a night at Rome, limestone, keels, flats, and boatmen of the olden time. Rome, Ohio, Monday, May 21st. At intervals through the night, rain fell, and the temperature was but 46 degrees at sunrise. However, by the time we were afloat, the sun was fitfully gleaming through masses of gray cloud, for a time giving promise of a warmer day. Dark shadows rested on the romantic ravines and on the deep hollows of the hills, but elsewhere over this gentle landscape of wooded amphitheaters, broad green meadows, rocky escarpments, and many-colored fields, light and shade gaily chased each other. Never were the vistas of the widening river more beautiful than today. There are sawmill and fire-brick industries in the little towns, which would be shabby enough in the full glare of day, but they are all glorified in this changing light, which brings out the rich yellows and reds in sharp relief against the gloomy background of the hills, and mellows into loveliness the soft grays of unpainted wood. At the mouth of the Scioto, 354 miles, is Portsmouth, Ohio, 15,000 inhabitants, a well-built, substantial town with good shops. It lies on a hill-backed terrace some forty feet above the level of the neighboring bottoms, which give evidence of being victims of the high floods periodically covering the lowlands about the junction of the rivers. Just across the Scioto is Alexandria, and on the Kentucky side of the Ohio can be seen the white hamlet of Springville, at the feet of the dentated hills which here closely approach the river. The country about the mouth of the Scioto has long figured in western annals. Being a favorite rendezvous for the Shawanese, it naturally became a resort for French and English fur traders. The principal part of the first Shawanee village, Shanoa Town, in the old journals, was below the Scioto's mouth, on the site of Alexandria. It was the chief town of this considerable tribe, and here Gist was warned back, when in March, 1751, he ventured thus far while inspecting lands for the Ohio Company. Two years later, there was a great, perhaps an unprecedented, flood in the Ohio, the water rising fifty feet above the ordinary level and destroying the larger part of the Shawanese village. Some of the Indians moved to the Little Miami, and others up to the Scioto, where they built successively old and new Chillicothe, but the majority remained and rebuilt their town on the higher land north of the Scioto, where Portsmouth now stands. An outlying band had had, from before Gist's day, a small town across the Ohio, the site of Springville, and it was here that George Crogan had his stone trading house, which was doubtless, after the manner of the times, a frontier fortress. In the French and Indian War, 1758, the Shawanese, 
tiring of continual conflict, withdrew from their Ohio River settlements to Old or Upper Chillicothe, and thus closed the once important fur trade at the mouth of the Scioto. It was while the Indian town at Portsmouth was still new, 1755, that a party of Shawanese brought here a Mrs. Mary Inglis, whom they had captured while upon a scalping foray into southwestern Virginia. The story of the remarkable escape of this woman at Big Bone Lick, of her long and terrible flight through the wilderness along the southern bank of the Ohio, and up the great Kanawha Valley, and her final return home and kindred, who viewed her as one delivered from the grave, is one of the most thrilling in Western history. Although the Shawanese had removed from their villages on the Ohio, they still lived in new towns in the north within easy striking distance of the great river, and, until the close of the eighteenth century, were a continual source of alarm to those whose business led them to follow this otherwise inviting highway to the continental interior. Flatboats bearing traders, immigrants, and travelers were frequently waylaid by the savages, who exhausted a fertile ingenuity in luring their victims to an ambuscade ashore, and, when not successful in this, would, in narrow channels, or when the current swept the craft near land, subject the voyagers to a fierce fusillade of bullets, against which even stout plank barricades proved of small avail. Vanceburg, Kentucky, 375 miles, is a little town at the bottom of a pretty amphitheater of hills. There was a floating photographer there, as we passed, with a gangplank run out to the shore, and framed specimens of his work hung along the town side of his ample barge. Men with teams were getting wagon loads of sand from the beach, for building purposes, and a mile or two down a floating saw and planning mill, the clipper, which we had seen before upriver, was busied upon logs which were being rolled down the beach from the bank above. There are several such mills upon the river, all seemingly occupied with tramp work, for there is a great deal of logging carried on, in a small and careful way, by farmers living on these wooden hills. Vanceburg was for the time bathed in sunlight, but, as we continued on our way, a heavy rain-cloud came creeping up over the dark Ohio hills, and, descending, cut off our view, at last lustily pelting us as we sat encased in rubber. We had been in our ponchos most of the day, as much for warmth as for shelter, for there was an all-pervading chill, which the fickle sun, breaking its early promise, had failed to dissipate. Thus, amid showers alternating with sunbeams, we proceeded unto Rome, 381 miles. An Ohio village, this Rome, and so fallen from its once proud estate that its post office no longer bears the name, it is simply stouts, if in these degenerate days you would send a letter hither. It was smartly raining when we put in on the stony beach above Rome. The tent went up in a hurry, and under it the cargo, but by the time all was housed the sun gushed out again, and stretching a line we soon had our bedding hung to dry. It is a charming situation, in this melting atmosphere, we have perhaps the most striking effects of cloud, hill, bottom, islands, and glancing river, which have yet been vouchsafed us. 
the romans like most rural folk along the river below wheeling chiefly drink cistern water earlier in our pilgrimage we stoutly declined to patronize these rain-water reservoirs and i would daily go far afield in search of a well but lately necessity has driven us to accept the cistern and often we find it even preferable to the well on those rare occasions when the latter can be found at villages or farmhouses but there are cisterns and cisterns foul holes like that at rosebud others that are neatness itself with all manner of grades between as for river water ever yellow with clay and thick as to moats much of it is used in the country parts this morning a bevy of negroes came down to the bank from a kentucky field and each in turn creeping out on a drift log for the ground is usually muddy a few feet up from the water's edge lay flat on his stomach and drank greedily from the royally mess at dusk there was again a damp chill and for the third time we left the doctor to keep bachelor's hall upon the beach it was raining smartly by the time the tavern was reached nearly a mile down the bank our advent caused a rare scurrying to and fro for two commercial drummers who were to depart by the early morning boat occupied the regular spar-room the landlady informed us and a bit of a cubby-hole off the back stairs had to be arranged for us guests are rarities at the hostelry in rome near ripley ohio tuesday may twenty second there was an inch of snow last night on the hills about and a morning cincinnati paper records a heavy fall in the pennsylvania mountains the storm is general and the river rose two feet overnight when we set off in mid-morning it was raining heavily but in less than an hour the clouds broke and the rest of the day has been an alternation of chilling showers and bursts of warm sunshine with the same succession of alluring vistas over which play broad bands of changing light and shade and overhead the storm clouds torn and tossed in the upper currents our landlord at rome asserted at breakfast that kentucky was fifty years behind the ohio side in improvements of every sort thus far we have not ourselves noticed differences of that degree doubtless before the late civil war all the antebellum travelers agree in this when the blight of slavery was resting on virginia and kentucky the south shore of the ohio was as another country but today, so far as we can ascertain from a surface view the little villages on either side are equally dingy and woe-begone and large southern towns like wheeling parkersburg point pleasant and maysville are very nearly an offset to steubenville marietta pomeroy ironton and portsmouth north shore towns of wealth and prominence are more numerous than on the dixie bank and are as a rule larger and somewhat better kept with the negro element less conspicuous but to say that the difference is anywhere near as marked as the landlord averred or as my own previous reading on the subject led me to expect is grossly to exaggerate after leaving manchester ohio 394 miles with a beautiful island at its door there are spasmodic evidences of the nearness of a great city market a large proportion of the hills are completely denuded of their timber and patched with rectangular fields of green brown and yellow 
Upon the bottoms there are frequent truck farms. Now and then are stone quarries upon the banks, with capacious barges moored in front, and upon one or two rocky ledgers were stone crushers, getting out material for concrete pavements. When we ask the bargemen, in passing, whether their loads are destined, the invariable reply is, the city, meaning Cincinnati, still seventy miles away. Limestone Creek, 405 miles, occupies a large space in western story for so insignificant a stream. It is now not over a rod in width, and at no season can it be over two or three. One finds it with difficulty along the mill-strewn shore of Maysville, Kentucky, the modern outgrowth of the limestone village of pioneer days. Limestone, settled four years before Marietta or Cincinnati, was long Kentucky's chief port of entry on the Ohio. Immigrants to the new state who came down the Ohio almost invariably booked for this point, thence taking stage to Lexington, and travelers in the early days seldom passed it by unvisited. But years before there was any settlement here, the valley of Limestone Creek, which comes gently down from low-lying hills, was regarded as a convenient doorway into Kentucky. When, 1776, George Rogers Clark was coming down the river from Pittsburgh, with powder given by Patrick Henry, then governor of Virginia, for the defense of Kentucky settlers from British-incited savages, he was chased by the latter and, putting into this creek, hastily buried the precious cargo on its banks. From here it was cautiously taken overland to the little forts, by relays of pioneers, through a gauntlet of murderous fire. About twenty-five miles from Limestone, too, was another attraction of the early time, the great Blue Lick Sulphur Spring. Here, in a valley surrounded by wooden hills, formerly congregated great herds of buffalo and deer, which licked the salty earth, and hunters soon learned that this was a royal ground for game. The Battle of the Blue Lick, 1782, will ever be famous in the annals of Kentucky. The Ohio was a mighty waterway into the continental interior in the olden days of limestone. Its only compere was the so-called Wilderness Road, overland through Cumberland Gap, the successor of Boone's Trail, just as Braddock's Road was the outgrowth of Nemecolin's Path. Until several years after the Revolutionary War, the country north of the Ohio was still Indian land, and settlement was restricted to the region south of the river, so that practically all west-going roads from the coast colonies centered either on Fort Pitt or Redstone, or on Cumberland Gap. On the outgoing trip, the wilderness road was the more toilsome of the two, but it was safer, for the Ohio's banks were beset with thieving and often murdering savages. In returning east, many who had descended the river preferred going overland through the gap to painfully pulling upstream through the shallows with the danger of Indians many times greater than when gliding down the deep current. The distance over the two routes from Philadelphia was nearly equal when the windings of the river were taken into account, but the Carolinians and the Georgians found Boone's Wilderness Road the shorter of the two in their migrations to the promised land of old Kaintuck. And we should not overlook the fact that of much importance was still a third route, 
up the james and down the great kanawha a route whose advantage to virginia washington early saw and tried in vain to have improved by a canal connecting the two rivers even before the opening of the revolution the ohio was the path of a considerable emigration we have seen washington going down to the great kanawha with his surveying party in seventeen seventy and finding that settlers were hurrying into the country for a hundred miles below fort pitt by the close of the revolution the ohio was a familiar stream pittsburgh from a small trading hamlet and fording place had grown by seventeen eighty five to have a thousand inhabitants chiefly supported by boat building and the kentucky carrying trade and boat yards were common up both the monongahela and the yogiogany for a distance of sixty miles nevertheless it was not until seventeen ninety two that there were regular conveniences for carrying passengers and freight down the ohio the emigrant or trader on arrival at pittsburgh or redstone had generally to wait until he could either charter a boat or have one built for him although sometimes he found a chance passenger flat going down this difficulty in securing river transportation was one of the reasons why the majority chose the wilderness road the first thing that strikes a stranger from the atlantic says flint eighteen fourteen is the singular whimsical and amusing spectacle of the varieties of watercraft of all shapes and structures these flint who knew the river well separates into seven classes one stately barges the size of an atlantic schooner with a raised and outlandish looking deck one of these required a crew of twenty-five to work it upstream two keelboats long slender and graceful in form carrying from fifteen to thirty tons easily propelled over the shallows and much used in low water and in hunting trips to missouri arkansas and the red river country three kentucky flats or broadhorns a species of ark very nearly resembling a new england pigsty these were from forty to a hundred feet in length fifteen feet in beam and carried from twenty to seventy tons some of these flats were not unlike the houseboats of today. it is no uncommon spectacle to see a large family old and young servants cattle hogs horses sheep fowls and animals of all kinds all embarked on one such bottom number four covered sleds ferry flats or allegheny skiffs carrying from eight to twelve tons number five pirogues of from two to four tons burthen sometimes hollowed from one big tree or the trunks of two trees united and a plank rim fitted to the upper part number six common skiffs and dugouts number seven monstrous anomalies not classifiable and often whimsical in design to these might be added the floating shops or stores with a small flag out to indicate their character so frequently seen by palmer eighteen seventeen and thriftily surviving unto this day minus the flag and hall eighteen twenty eight speaks of a flat-bottomed rowboat twelve feet long with high sides and roof carrying an aged couple down the river 
they cared not where so long as they could find a comfortable home in the west for their declining and now childless years the first four classes here enumerated were allowed to drift downstream with the current being steered by long sweeps hung on pivots the average speed was about three miles an hour but the distances made were considerable from the fact that in the earliest days they were from fear of indians usually kept on the move through day and night the crew taking turns at the sweeps that the craft might not be hung up on shore or entangled in the numerous snags and sawyers in going upstream the sweeps served as oars and in the shallows long pushing poles were used as for the boatmen who professionally propelled the keels and flats of the ohio they were a class unto themselves half horse half alligator a contemporary styled them rough fellows much given to fighting and drunkenness and ribaldry with a genius for coarse drollery and stinging repartee the river towns suffered sadly at the hands of this lawless dissolute element each boat carried from thirty to forty boatmen and a number of such boats frequently traveled in company after the indian scare was over they generally stopped overnight in the settlements and the arrival of a squadron was certain to be followed by a disturbance akin to those so familiar a few years ago in our southwest when the cowboys would undertake to paint a town red the boatmen were reckless of life limb and reputation and were often more numerous than those of the villagers who cared to enforce the laws while there was always present an element which abetted and throve on the vice of the rivermen the result was that mischief debauchery and outrage ran riot and in the inevitable fights the citizens were generally beaten the introduction of steamboats eighteen fourteen soon effected a revolution a steamer could carry ten times as much as a barge could go five times as fast and required fewer men it traveled at night quickly passing from one port to another pausing only to discharge or receive cargo its owners and officers were men of character and responsibility with much wealth in their charge and insisted on discipline and correct deportment the flatboat and the keelboat were soon laid up to rot on the banks and the boatmen either became respectable steamboat hands and farmers or went into the far west where wild life was still possible shipment on the river in the flatboat days was only during the spring and autumnal floods although an occasional summer rise such as we are now getting would cause a general activity in the autumn of eighteen eighteen hall reports that three millions of dollars worth of merchandise were lying on the shores of the monongahela waiting for a rise of water to float them to their destination the western merchants were lounging discontentedly about the streets of pittsburgh or moping idly in its taverns like the victims of an ague the steamers did something to alleviate this condition of affairs but it was not until the coming of railways to carry goods quickly and cheaply across country to deep water ports like wheeling that permanent relief was felt but what of the maysville of today it extends on both sides of limestone creek for about two miles along the kentucky shore at no point apparently over five squares wide and for the most part but two or three for back of it forested hills rise sharply 
There is a variety of industries, the business quarter is substantially built, and there are numerous comfortable homes with pretty lawns. On the opposite shore is Aberdeen, where Kentucky swains and lasses, who for one reason or another fail to get a license at home, find marriage made easy, a peaceful, pleasant, white village with trees aplenty and romantic hills shutting out the north wind. We are camped tonight on a picturesque sand slope at the foot of a willow-edged bottom and some seven feet above the river level. We need to perch high, for the storm has been general through the basin, and the Ohio is rising steadily. End of chapter 13 Recording by Robert Hoffman